I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my pay, which my lovers have given me. I will punish her for the festival days of the Baals, when she went after her lovers and forgot me, says the Lord. Therefore, I will now allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There she shall respond as when she came out of the land of Egypt. And I will take you for my wife forever in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will show, sow him for myself in the land, and I will have pity on not pitied, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. The Sitzimleben of this passage is very important. What is its setting in life? Scholars believe that Hosea worked for about 25 years as a prophet in the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes. You remember that they had separated themselves ten against two, two against ten, because ten never felt quite so loved by their father Jacob as did the other two, both of whom were born to favored wife. So it was ten against two, two against ten until David became king. He was powerful enough to bring all of them back together. Solomon, powerful enough to hold them together. After Solomon's death, Rehoboam was not as strong as father and grandfather, and the tribes separated again. 746, we believe. 746 before the Common Era, Hosea lived in the northern, the ten northern ones. The armies just across their northern border were growing stronger and stronger, and the Assyrians produced one great leader after another. Remember from your world history, Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser, strong, strong kings, and things were in disarray in the northern tribes. During that same 25-year period, they had king after king assassinated three of their kings in a 25-year period. Hosea has decided to use his preaching, teaching, as a message to his unfaithful wife, which he hoped people would understand was really representative of Israel. That Gomer, his wife, who might have been a prostitute at one of the pagan temples, she's called a prostitute, now unfaithful to Hosea, and he speaks to her, but of course he's speaking to his people and saying that you have been just as unfaithful to God as has my wife Gomer been to me. Now let me remind you that the pagan gods of the time were all about fertility. In a time when so many women died young, most often in childbirth, it was so important that every woman have as many babies as possible, that every ewe have as many lambs as she could, every cow bear as many calves as possible, and that all seeds planted would germinate and grow new food. So the pagan cults centered around fertility. Baal was a special one of the old Canaanites. They had built temples to this god Baal on the tops of all the most beautiful hills. You can see some of the ruins of that kind of worship when you go to the island of Sicily. The temples were most recently Christian, but before they were Christian, they were pagan. 
They built one on the top of each of the most beautiful hills in Sicily so that the fires burning around the altars at night would draw people up. We know there were prostitutes who worked those temples, trying to summon the men to come up the hill. To come up the hill and cavort with the prostitutes was to inspire the gods and goddesses of fertility. Hosea is convinced that his people have sold out to these pagan gods and that the one true God is about to deal with them. And he did, of course. In 721, at the end of that 25-year period, the Assyrians poured across the border. They burned, looted, raped, plundered, intermarried. We speak in history today of the ten lost tribes of Israel. They disappeared. Hosea is preaching to those people during that 25-year period. Let's take a look. First of all, he addresses the vines. He means grapevines, of course. The vineyards were so important. The fig trees, the olive groves. These, you say, you have earned. They are payment from your lovers. In other words, all of your crops are as good as they are because you've gone up the hill to the gods and goddesses of fertility. To whom do you ascribe power, majesty, effectiveness? You know that last Sunday, Monday, Tuesday were very busy days for all of us around the church. <clears throat> I was getting here pretty early every morning and not getting home till almost 9.30 every night. So I got to make no telephone calls Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. Wednesday night, I picked up the phone and started calling those who had been visiting with us. I called one man, and as soon as he said hello, I called him by a first name that I had there on my registration sheet and said, I'm Muzon Biggs, Minister of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. I was calling to tell you how glad we were you came to worship with us Sunday morning. And he said, I didn't come to worship. I looked again at the telephone number I had just dialed, and I said, were you not at Boston Avenue Church Sunday morning? He said, yes, but I didn't come to worship. I said, what did you come to do? He said, I came to see Kay Northcutt. I said, okay. And after you saw and heard Kay Northcutt, you worshipped. No, he said, I don't even know what the word means. Furthermore, I don't think you know what it means. I said, well, you're wrong about that. I do know what this word means. This word comes from an old English word, worship. And it means determining the worth of various things and experiences in one's life. And Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock for us are those hours when we ascribe ultimate worth, power, authority, dominion to the one true God we've come to know in Jesus Christ. I said, do you have a church here in Tulsa? Yeah, he said, I'm a Presbyterian. I said, well, I'm glad you came. Come again sometime. And I moved on. <laughs> I knew no Methodist would talk to me like that. <laughs> this is all about ascribing power and effectiveness to the one who should have power and effectiveness ascribed to him. The one true God. That has not been true of Israel. It is often not true of us either. Channel 8 is about to have the most recent showing of a raisin in the sun. Have you ever seen that play or read it? I read a lot of plays before I saw them. One of my courses in seminary was reading good plays. 
And certainly a raisin in the sun is, a, is an arresting kind of play. It was first staged in 1959, almost 50 years ago. It was written by a woman playwright, Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine is a black woman. And she knows what it was like to grow up in the 40s and 50s in the United States of America. Her mother and father believed the best schools were in the predominantly white neighborhoods, so they had worked really hard and saved their money to buy a house in a predominantly white neighborhood. The white neighbors were not happy about that. And so they threatened this family. She said, while my father was trying to fight our way through the courts, my mother was helping me with homework at night with a loaded gun across her lap afraid of our neighbors. When Lorraine got to be a young woman, she wrote A Raisin in the Sun. She took the title from one of Langston Hughes' poems where he says, Hope deferred will dry up like a raisin in the sun. Lorraine wrote her play about a black family who are undergoing all kinds of transitions. The father has just died. The mother's worked hard all of her life and now is about to inherit the most money she's ever seen in her life at one time, $10,000 life insurance. Her son is trying to talk her out of the money. And her daughter has decided that all this God talk her mother's always putting out really doesn't mean anything at all. Man, he said, man, man is the authority of his ultimate being. And her mother slaps her across the face. You can hear it. The slap of the back of a human hand on a grown young daughter's face, and the mother says, Repeat carefully after me. In my mother's house, there is still God. Number two. Hosea says, I will punish her for all these festivals at the top of the hills. I will punish her when she went to these other lovers and forgot The Wall Street Journal had an article just recently about a study released by Georgetown University about Roman Catholic late teens, early 20s. This is what it said. Adult young, Catholic young adults place great importance on marriage, but have turned away from church-based ideas of how to make it work, according to a study released just last week by Georgetown University. 82% of these young adults said they believe marriage is a lifelong commitment. Their baby boomer parents said only 56% of them thought so. So the younger generation seems to be more conservative in that respect. Moreover, 84% of these young Catholics said they believe that divorce should not be nearly so easy to attain that it caused people to give up on the marriages that they have far too quickly. 84% of them, only 67% of their baby boomer parents thought so. But then the archbishop, whose committee had commissioned this study, said, but we have a problem. The baby boomer generation believed what they believed because of what they had been taught by the church. And these young adults believe only in themselves. They believe moral authority resides in them. And all I can say is they are a generation who have had very ineffective Christian education. What has that got to do with you and me? 
we're experiencing the same kinds of things. We're losing our World War II generation who believe that church and Sunday school were every seventh day. They were here Sunday after Sunday. You can build a great church on those kinds of people. Today, so many of our young adults will tell you they are active in their church and they attend once or twice every month or six weeks. And they think that's active. They are actively involved. How much do you think a five-year-old child, a ten-year-old child, a fifteen-year-old child is learning if he or she is in Sunday school or church one Sunday out of seven or eight? So where will they gain their authority? Where will they gain their moral compass? How will they decide what is right, what is wrong? And will they determine that that sense of right and wrong is simply within them? Or will they acknowledge there is one true God who asks everything of us, heart, mind, soul, and strength? Number three, I know what I will do, Hosea says. And he's speaking for God, remember. Hosea is talking about Gomer, but he hopes all these people understand that he is speaking for God about Israel. And he says, I know what I will do. I will romance her. One translation this week I read said, I will coax her. Your New Revised Standard Version says, I will allure her back to the wilderness. Wilderness was desert. Even in Israel today, when they speak of wilderness, it means the desert. You get to the south city limits of Jerusalem, you enter the desert. And it is desert from there all the way to the Suez Canal. Hosea is living more than 500 years after Moses. But he believes that the children of Israel, having been enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians, fell in love with the God who came to rescue them. With the God who came with Moses to face down Pharaoh and lead them out of slavery. Who parted the waters of the sea for them. Who fed them on manna and quail and found watering hole after watering hole. All the way back to Sinai where he gave them ten commandments for ordering their life together. Hosea says, I will, I will lure her back to the desert. Back to the desert. Surely there she will respond again to my love as she did once upon a time when we first came out of Egypt together. There's a new biography written about Bill Malden. The World War II generation will know that name immediately. Bill Walden became very well known because of a cartoon strip that he drew in combat uh, in Italy, uh, published in the Stars and Stripes. He had two characters named Willie and Joe, now, these two infantrymen, and, and he put them into humorous situations, even in the midst of a great war. Uh, Paul Galloway, he and Maggie spend much of their winters here with us, though they officially live in Chicago. Um, son of the late uh, Bishop Paul Galloway, whom we love so very much, and, and Elizabeth Galloway. Paul Galloway's career at the Chicago Sun-Times overlapped that of Bill Malden. They knew each other well. I've talked with Paul about Bill Malden. Bill Malden was born out in New Mexico, 1919. His family faced the difficulties of that Great Depression. His father moved the family very often, and Bill never graduated from high school. Um, 
when he was 19 years old, he joined the army. He was placed in the quartermaster corps, and he said he didn't want to be a quartermaster. He wanted to be an infantry rifleman. His colonel said he was the dumbest man he'd ever seen in his life, and no soldier he had ever known would ask to get out of quartermasters in order to join frontline fighting, particularly with a war brewing in Europe. But Bill Malden said he wanted to be a rifleman, and he was placed in the infantry. By 1943, he was dispatched with his unit to Italy. Uh, General George Patton had moved American forces across the island of Sicily, had jumped across at Messina, and were now ready to move up the Italian boot all the way to Germany. But what fierce fighting they ran into. So many of us love Mr. Armand Bost. His brother was killed in fierce fighting just outside Florence. Bill Malden was injured at Casino. <coughs> Excuse me, where the famous mountain of Monte Casino is. There was a wonderful Benedictine monastery on the top of that mountain, but the Nazis had, had burrowed in there, and Americans fought for months trying to rouse them out of the top of Monte Casino. Bill Malden was injured there. Served on through the end of the war, but through the war, he kept drawing this cartoon strip that was picked up and run in Stars and Stripes about Willie and Joe. One of those uh, the two of them are hunkered down in, in a bunker one night, and the tracers are going across the sky, and one says to the other, you know, I've about decided I am a dropout from the law of averages, meaning sooner or later, it's going to hit me. It's going to hit me. When the war was over, he ended up in time with the St. Louis Dispatch, and then from there on to the Chicago Sun-Times. But one of his most famous cartoons after the war you may remember, November 22, 1963. The President of the United States was shot down in the streets of Dallas. And the next day, Bill Malden's cartoon showed the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. Many of you have seen it. All of us have seen it on television if we haven't seen it in person. This magnificent white marble statue of President Lincoln sitting in a big, big chair. And that morning, Abe Lincoln had his hands covering his face, face buried in his hands, sobbing. Not a word, just a picture. 1963 was a hard year for these United States of America. That whole decade was hard for us. Uh, we had more kids doing drugs. Uh, sex had just become rampant uh, with the coming of the pill and so on sex and drugs and drugs and sex and riots and people forcing college and university presidents out of their offices and occupying the offices. The infamous uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968, not only was John Kennedy assassinated, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It was a tough, tough decade. And Abe Lincoln sitting in his big chair, sobbing into his hands. But we were in the wilderness. We were in the desert, and better things have happened. Out of the 60s came significant new legislation about race in this country. Some things that had been wrong for so long were suddenly made better, much better, much, much better. Uh, women's place in society changed dramatically in the last 40 years in this country. None of these fronts are where we ought to be yet, but we've come a long way in a lot of different areas from time spent in the desert. If we turn to the one whom we first loved, who brought us out of slavery, who made us a new people, Lent 
is about Jesus' movement to Jerusalem. It will end in death, a horrible death. Well, it seems to have ended in death. There was a Sunday morning after Friday afternoon. And so forth. God said, I believe she will respond. And if she does, I will call her my wife forever. And love her in faithfulness, steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness. We'll love her forever. Hosea had named his three kids Jezreel. It's a beautiful, fertile valley. The waters that fall from the sky, the rain up near Haifa, do not by and large go into the Mediterranean. They flow away from the Mediterranean because of the topography. They flow to the Jordan River. And so all along the Jezreel River, you have some of those beautiful crops in all of Israel. That was true in Hosea's time. But Jezreel had come to have very bad connotation for Hosea because it was there that Jezebel lived, that Ahab lived, that Yehu had finally killed them both and had severed the heads of all seven of their sons and displayed those heads in the public forum. It was a valley of blood, murder. Now three more kings assassinated in Hosea's own lifetime. Jezreel was not a good place. Called his second son, not pitied. My professor said it really was just simply not loved. And the third one was called, not mine. Or not my people. Jezreel, a place of blood and unhappiness. Not loved. Not mine. But when I get her back to the desert, surely she will love me the way she first loved me. And I can throw my arms around my children and say, in Jezreel we will have vineyards and fig trees and olive trees again. Not loved will be loved and not mine. I will call my people. This week, early one morning, I was shaving with the television on just behind me. Martin Fletcher was on. He was traveling with our president in Africa. Martin Fletcher was talking about how much good has been done by the millions of dollars poured into African countries to fight AIDS. He said, let me show you something. And he showed us a little film clip from six years ago. A little girl whom he said was named Evelyn was skin and bones, a two-year-old. A two-year-old child who looked as if she were gasping for her last breath, a victim of AIDS. But American dollars arrived. Dollars from other places arrived. Needed medications were given to these children, huge doses of them over the last six years. And Martin Fletcher said, I want you to see little Evelyn. And they turned the camera on her. A precious black child, eight years old. Plump little cheeks round little arms and legs. And then he said, I want to show you something. Little Evelyn has had a hard time. Both her mother and her father died of AIDS before all these drugs arrived. So she's grown up without mother or father. She's had medications that have made her life possible up to this point. When I arrived this morning, he said she was in English class at school. And I asked if we could take a picture of little Evelyn, and they said that would be fine. And as we moved the camera in to take a picture of her, we could see her notebook on her desk. You've seen these notebooks. My name is, my school is, 
my class is, and she had written, my name is Evelyn. My school is Struggle, my class. <laughs> 